Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're discussing the tabletop role-playing game Heaven and Earth. Before we get into that, however, Merry Christmas, everyone! Yes, Merry Christmas! Ho, ho, ho. Uh, and this is going out on Christmas Day, so consider it our Christmas present to each and every one of you, because we're, we're cheap bastards. We know you've been naughty and nice. As we speak, there's still seven more days in which you can secure your copy of The Blasphemous Tome, our fanzine, for our Patreon backers by getting over to Patreon and pledging at least a dollar. Yeah, this is a print-only thing that we do once every year. Contains articles on Call of Cthulhu, on things related to the podcast, horror films, uh, weird fiction. We've got lots of lovely artwork, including a fantastic cover by Evan Dorkin. We have submissions from some of our fantastic listeners, and um, it should be a lot of fun. And topping the bill, we have a scenario by our very own Matt Sanderson. Yay! Yes, the, the hero affirmed. So treat yourself to another Christmas present. And also coming up soon, Matt, you're going to be at Contingency, I believe. Yes, yeah, that's the middle of January, uh, going into late January, up in sunny Hunstanton. Traditionally been the South Coast Convention at the end of January. It's the uh, spiritual successor to Conception, but is now uh, moved north for lack of a venue that isn't doing renovations throughout January. Yeah, so this is taking place between the 23rd to the 27th of January, like you said, at Stanton. So if you want to go along, play games with Matt and at a residential convention... That may or that, may not involve freezing your nuts off in San Stanton in January. Well, way to sell it, Matt. Way yeah. to sell it. <laughs> so, so yes, yeah, if you want to freeze your nuts off with Matt, you know what to do. Yeah. We'll put a link in the show notes. And now on to our main topic, Heaven and Earth. Before we launch into this, we'd better say that out of the three of us, Matt by far knows this game the best. I played it once with him, Paul's played a bit more, um, but Matt is very much our subject matter expert. So this episode will mostly be Paul and me asking Matt lots of questions. And just to give you a bit of warning, we have timed this exquisitely. Matt Perfectly. has got a nasty cold, so he is, he is suffering for you today, listeners. He is suffering. Yeah, if you think I'm do, uh, doing an impression of Batman, trust me, it's not intentional. But, but why are you wearing the outfit then? Hush. So how would you sum up Heaven and Earth for listeners that haven't come across it? Because I don't think it's one that everybody knows about, like Dungeons and Dragons or whatever. Heaven and Earth is somewhat more obscure. What's the elevator pitch, Matt? Yeah, it's, it's one that's been criminally overlooked, in my opinion, because it's a fantastic little game. It's best described as Twin Peaks the RPG with the serial numbers filed off. Yeah, the blurb describes it as a role-playing game of surrealism, horror, and absurdity. So that's like my three favourite things in life. <laughs> yeah, um, absurdity, um, I kind of wonder sometimes, should that be in there? But there's moments where it creeps in anyway. Now, it's a game that's been around for almost 20 years. First edition in 1999 from Event Horizon Productions, using mm -hmm. a diceless system. Yeah, it's a single volume that they originally were, I think, aiming for something akin to first edition Mage, where the spines of the books all have numbers on them, so that they produced this thick volume for the core rulebook that had a big number one 
at the top and then highlighted there were going to be other follow-on books from it that would obviously be like volume two, volume three, et cetera, et cetera. They never happened, which is a shame because it sets up a fantastic universe. So there was definitely ground for where you could see areas were going to be expanded. Also, as you say, no dice. That that makes it even better for me, so the dice <laughs> gods can't curse me. But but, the, but there were still randomizers, right? Oh yeah, there, there was a fate deck. Key elements of fate and destiny come through all three editions, and the fate deck was a deck of cards that you could draw, and you kept it. It had various effects. And was that a regular deck of playing cards, or is that a deck of cards that's published specifically for this game? No, regular playing cards. Right. Yeah. And then second edition came out you know, two years later, so obviously it didn't last very long with its original publisher. Mm. Second edition was put out by Guardians of Order, and they used a variant, I believe, of the TriStat system. Yeah, tri- TriStat DX. There was an option in there. You could run it with dice, but instead it was two decks of cards, uh, one for representing the randomizer of dice mechanics, but then suits also counted as a modifier in there as well. And then the Fate deck again was a separate deck of cards, which each card had a different effect that you could throw into the game at any point and really mess around with your GM. It's also nice, definitely better quality artwork and layout in general. The Player's Guide and the GM's Guide were almost two parts of the same piece of artwork. You could put them side by side and it had the picture of God prostrate across the front cover. And then just a few more years on, 2004... We have the third edition. Looking at these dates now, I realise how crammed together mm. they are. We've got 19... So within five years, we've got three editions published. This third one from Abstract Nova Entertainment. Using yet again a different set of mechanics. Which our good friend Steve Ellis had quite a large part in playing a hand in. He's uh, attributed with invaluable feedback in the core rulebook as being one of the playtesters. Oh, marvellous. Good work, Steve. Yeah, very good. So it's a nice, very simple system as well, which is one thing I like. And we're going to focus on this third edition. This is the most recent edition, right, from 2004? Yep. Sadly, there's no others yet. Yeah, it is out of print, really. Well, it is and it isn't out of print. You can't really get the physical books. They seem to go for quite a lot of money online now. Do they? Yeah. yeah. But the uh, the PDFs are available from DriveThruRPG or RPG Now. And it's not only the core book, but they did one supplement, which we may touch on later, called Paradise Lost. That is a very good book. You can get the PDFs of both of those. Uh, so it's it's not completely out of print, but you may have to resign yourself to only getting an ebook. Mm. Now let's take a look at the setting used in Heaven and Earth. So what is the setting for Heaven and Earth, Matt? T- tell us all about Potter's Lake. <laughs> well, it's a town with a history, and boy, has it got a history. Um, it's about an hour or two's drive away from Kansas City, it's in rural Midwest America. And on the surface, it looks like any small town. It's just sat on the edge of this rather large lake. There's some woods that surround it on three sides. There's a logging business in town, which is one of the major employers. There's an Air Force base just outside of town that does some does some training programs for the US Air Force. There's nothing out of the ordinary on the surface, apart from when you think that people disappear here at a rate several times more than the national average, like 24 people a year go missing in the woods since 1947, and there's more ghosts per square inch than the rest of the country combined. <laughs> and so fairly analogous to Twin Peaks in the TV show yeah, oh, there's as a location? Lots, there's lots of places where you can think, oh, yeah, that's this place in Twin Peaks. Oh, yeah, this is that place. And there's a lot of similarities. And is that fairly close to Twin Peaks in, you know, where that no. was set no, in reality? No, that was up in Washington State. Yeah. There's, there's bits where they go across the Canadian border to one I Of course, yes, yes. 
And considering the, the weirdness of this place, it's, it's part of the setting, isn't it, that the population are just somehow completely oblivious to how weird everything is? They're either oblivious or very accepting. The weirdness goes from varying different levels. One of the points I'll come back to uh, repeatedly on this is that there's, I draw a lot of parallels between how you can structure a game of Heaven and Earth that you can structure a game of Unknown Armies. Because it very mm. much depends on how clued into the weirdness and the background metaplot you are, or how much you can read into it and what you can interact with. Now, from my limited understanding, I mean, with second edition, it was much more the case with the setting that they laid a lot of it up front and, you know, you were perhaps more plugged into the weirdness of the setting. But with third edition, it isn't part of the idea that generally you expect player characters to be people who are new to town, who are experiencing all this for the first time. And it becomes more of an investigative unravelling of the weirdness rather than this is where you live. Yeah, yeah. The... Second Ed had a very X-Files type approach to it. In fact, the story that accompanied the player's guide, um, Angel Dust, I believe it was, that actually was a carryover from the first edition rulebook, has an FBI team investigating a series of murders. The organisation within the FBI, the Red Tie Division, was very much a, in Call of Cthulhu terms, a classic investigator organisation. I mean, well, it, and that's also lifted from Twin Peaks. What, 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 they, the Blue what's Rose. It called? Yeah, the Blue Rose, yeah. Uh, and this, yeah, all the agents were given red ties by a particular regional director of the FBI. Oh, uh, yeah. And what's the story behind Potter's Lake then? So you've mentioned that lots of people go missing and there's lots of ghosts. Is there a cohesive single thread or are there just lots of miscellaneous things bound up together? With kind of pun intended, it's a bit like a tree that it starts with a single plot that develops through the years and then it starts branching out in lots of different directions. Right. Um, the town itself started as actually just a single cabin. Uh, Jacob Potter, Potter's Lake, you're going to get where the name comes from, was a trapper. He established a cabin there. It became a trading post. He started dealing with the local native population there. There were some scattered amongst the woods. They were very reticent to come out, but it gradually it became a place where trade was established. And then when, where trade happened, people started to move there. Bizarrely enough, Potter went missing a few years into his stay there. There are, if you read deep enough, there are answers to where he's ended up. But bizarrely, the Vatican decided to send a mission over to the US, specifically to this little burgeoning community, to set up a church. Uh, which became St Anselm's. So it became the centre of education for the region in the town. So the more people just started coming here, it was like a magnet. And then it starts to then branch out from there where you've got things like the paper mill coming in to set up business, where they start to hack down the woods and start to create their own local economy. You have the Air Force Base and the whole thing just grows into the town it is today. That all sounds very rooted in reality. What is it that makes this such a, a weird setting? Because it's the last shard of the Garden of Eden on Earth. Oh, that'd do it. Yeah. <laughs> Going back down, as I mentioned, tree was a uh, pun intended. Going back to the root of that tree, actually one of the things that's bizarre about second edition, if you read the back of the core rulebook, the whole metaplot is spelled out for you. Mm, it yes. was really weird. that This big spoiler reveal that they wanted to keep hidden was on the back of the, on the, back of the book. <laughs> um, there had been a war in heaven. Um, Lucifer had rebelled. And there had been contests to try and gain control of reality ever since, and every single contest had ended in stalemate. Lucifer came to heaven with his army and said, we want one last battle, we want, we want final resolution. 
but they couldn't agree whether the battle should be fought in heaven or fought in hell because either one would have a home advantage. So they said, we need an intermediary. We need a, a neutral battleground. So the earth was created, suspended in the formless void that separated heaven from hell. Lucifer again said, no, this isn't fair, God. You've created this battleground. You have an inherent advantage here. It's your creation. I want to be able to dictate elements of this battleground and what the battle is that we play. So he had two alterations to Earth that he could add. One was he put the sun in the sky. He's the light bringer after all. So his rationale was, oh, you see, the people that we're going to put on this board, they're going to be able to see what's happening here. They're going to question you because they have choice. They have inquisitive minds. They will eventually come to question you and they will fall to me. They'll begin playing D&D, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's all the satanic panic all over again. Oh, you've got to, got to draw the line somewhere, Paul. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and he set the contest as being, it's not going to send an army down there to kick the shit out of each other. No, we're going to battle for souls. We're going to, to get the one thing that our minions don't have. Whoever has the most souls at the end of the game wins. I, I remember it being described as being like a giant game of chess. Yeah, it is exactly that. Because they can manipulate people on the board, but they can't necessarily just go down and cut them down or sway them or make... Well, they can make packs with them, but it's it's a bit of a grey area. God, on the other hand, said, right, I will cast light from day so that they may well see the world and question me in, uh, during the day, but at night, in solace, they will come to me. They will seek me for refuge. And later on down the line, as he realised that the devil was winning quite substantially, he decided to pull his wild card. He put Jesus on the earth. Jesus being a physical representation of God, God's son. He thinks, oh, well, the physical proof of my existence. There you go. They can't deny me now. Except Jesus, when he found out that effectively whoever wins the game, humanity loses, turns around and says, fuck you, daddy, I'm out to save humanity. <laughs> So okay. he, he goes out on his own and has been trying to um, help humanity become as God is so that they can throw a spanner in the game and hopefully try and stop it and save themselves. Just as an aside, I, this is something that strikes me as being a fascinating aspect of almost every RPG I've seen that uses aspects of Christianity, which is they are all deeply, deeply heretical. I don't think I've ever seen an RPG that's played Christianity straight. No, even things like Cult that Draw from Gnostic Christianity, they're, they're all taking elements of it and twisting it into their own story, this especially. There was even a, an RPG written, oh gosh, a long time ago by, I believe, evangelical Christians called Seventh Seal, which was sort of a Christian take almost on the world of darkness, where you were playing ordinary people who were touched by God and were fighting demons on earth. And even the background to that was you were trying to prevent the apocalypse, trying to prevent the second coming and save humanity, which is, again, actually a pretty heretical notion. Sorry, it's just an aside. It always strikes me as being interesting that this happens. With this especially, the thing I find quite different is that when you look at the heavenly host, when you look at the infernal armies, they're essentially the same thing. They're just two sides of a game that ultimately don't care about humanity. There is no good, there is no evil. That's very similar to the setup of the Supernatural TV series. Mm. Mm. But yeah, Potter's Lake is the last shard of the Garden of Eden because God realised there was a flaw in his design in which he'd essentially put too much of himself into the creation of the world. And the two trees that are mentioned in the book of Genesis, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, they are elements of effectively what is the essence of god the reason why eve and adam were kicked out of the garden of eden is because they'd eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and realized the nature of the contest and what <laughs> their part in it was okay um, they were kicked out before they could find the tree of life and eat from it because if they 
eat from both trees, they become as God. They become immortal with the knowledge of what good and evil is in the context of the wider universe. So that's the ultimate goal for players in the game is trying to find those trees and then wreck the game by becoming new players. And are those trees located around Potter's Lake then? I They're mean, are we saying that's... When you said it's the last shard of the Garden mm-hmm. of Eden, do you mean it's the location of the Garden of Eden? Or? Yeah, it's, but the trees are both out in the woods. Right. One of them is given in the game, but then the other is up for the GM to decide whereabouts in the woods it is. Okay, hmm. How do they reconcile then in the the cosmology of the game? If Adam and Eve, as the progenitors of mankind, start out with the knowledge of good and evil, understand what the game is all about, why don't we as a species descended from them understand this? Yeah, they don't really cover that. When they're kicked out from the garden, they just beget offspring that then start to take over. And it's almost written between the lines that the knowledge is lost. Hmm. that it's their kids don't possess the same knowledge as them, that they have to eat from the tree to be able to gain that knowledge. It, It can't be taught. So you've explained the origins of all this weirdness, but obviously there's a lot more weirdness in Potter's Lake than just that. Oh, yeah. I mean, you talked about, for example, the number of ghosts. Mm-hmm. Is it then explained in the cosmology of the game why so much weird shit happens there? Is it just because it's the Garden of Eden or part of the Garden of Eden, or is there more going on than that? It's a little bit more. The big rationale given in the book is that it's effectively a supernatural magnet, that everyone's been drawn there for the end of the game. Hmm. that they know that this is where the last moves will be played and where Armageddon will effectively begin. It's also, as I mentioned about Christ being the one that says, screw you, Daddy, I'm out to save humanity. He has had quite a long time to try and develop various plans and contingency plans that will ultimately help humanity win the game in the end. And those plans are being drawn to him because he's out in the woods around the town that his followers are being drawn to him. He's sort of developing new um, new apostles It's also his bloodline, which is the rationale for how you have psychics or anyone with weird abilities, is that there are fundamentally, they are related to Christ through blood. So they carry part of the divine spark within them. Um, They are all being drawn here subconsciously to stay in the town awaiting the time when he will call upon them. So we've got the general overview of Potter's Lake now and what the background of that is. That doesn't always necessarily come into play directly. So what are a few examples of locations or people who live there just to give us a flavour of the place that we might encounter as players when we get into the game? Mm -hmm. This is one thing I love the books for so much is that they are so much setting material over mechanics. You've got loads of NPCs, loads of locations, folklore, history, all providing you with this rich tapestry of the town. It took me a little while to try and pin down who I'd consider my favourites were um, amongst the, so the vast dramatis persona that you have. I think the top has to be Sullivan Pierce, mainly because his picture paints him as Vincent Price. <laughs> the, the artwork screams Vincent when you look at him. He's the antique store owner and general occultist in town, and arguably the big bad guy of the setting on the human level. He's an agent of Lucifer. He's responsible for binding a Goetia to one of the local bigwigs um, in town, one of the subplots that you can come across. Sorry, when you say one of the Goetia, what you're, you're referring to the demons from the Goetia, from the Lesser Key of Solomon? Oh yes, they're all there. They have the whole chapter dedicated to them in the core book, being that they predate the game, so they are almost like a third party that you can bring in at any point to completely disrupt things. Okay. This guy with his shop sounds a little influenced by the Stephen King book Needful Needful Things. Things. Oh, yes. Yeah, okay, right. (laughs) Yeah, very much that. He he is Leland Gaunt, as played by Vincent Price. Nice. He also knows the truth about what's going on because he's effectively immortal. 
So he's been around long enough and with the connections he has with the Infernal Army that he knows the nature of the game that's going on. So he can be a way, if you get on his good side or you make an ally of him, that you could learn about the big meta plot from him. Next one, got to be Meltdown. Meltdown is the figure that's presented on the front cover of the third edition book. Admittedly, the, the artwork in colour makes him look a lot more respectable and presentable than he is in the, uh, in the, the Second Ed artwork. Well, he's effectively a homeless bum, covered in mud and shit, with dreadlocks, smelly clothes, and the way I present him in games, he's normally looking for an apple. Okay. <laughs> at least on the surface, he's a bit of a street prophet, that he just rambles on these um, nonsensical phrases and terms, and occasionally just pops up in the most random of places. Um, his backstory is that he is the angel Iophiel that was assigned to guard the gates of the Garden of Eden, <laughs> so Adam and Eve couldn't get back in except God just left him there. So sat for thousands of years in isolation, he went mad. And it wasn't until the native Indians found him that they gave him a home and gave him a community. God then forced him to kill them because they were getting far too close to the trees and his sanity just snapped completely. And he is now this completely mad shadow of his former self wandering around the town trying to find out who he once was. Uh, the last one I love is because she is great as being able to screw with PCs, quite quite literally. Lydia Price. Um, imagine this artist that dots around town, usually in the public parks. There's a few of them in Potter's Lake, down by the lakeside or down off Main Street. She dresses in this quite outdated attire. She looks a bit like a hippie, but is always seen with an easel or paintbrush in hand and tries to make friends with everyone. But yeah, it's just something's a little bit off about her. Uh, the reason being, she was gunned down in a mass murder at the local uh, motel about 40 years ago, <laughs> and her ghost hasn't been able to move on. So she is desperately trying to connect and feel alive again, but most attempts that she makes with trying to make human relationships now end in tragedy. So I, I've had uh, a couple of instances in games where I've run where Lydia has become attached to a particular PC for them only to find, oh shit, you're dead. <laughs> right, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> There's another NPC in there, I don't know his name, but it just struck me as being the kind of character that you in real life aspire to, Matt, which is the bartender who knows how to mix every drink in existence. I'm just stunned that you didn't pick him as your paragon. I'm probably going to mispronounce the name here entirely. Oniji Koanji. He's quite a good NPC for a couple of things, especially at the bartending, yeah, I've got a soft spot for him there. But also the artwork they present for him in the book. He's actually out of Paradise Lost. He's from the supplement. If you look carefully at his fingers, you'll find that one of them is missing. There are hints to being former Yakuza. It's all shrouded in mystery and it's all very much, oh, the GM can kind of do whatever they want with him, which is why I didn't air to him as one of my favourites. But Because he's he feels a bit too much like a one-trick pony. I did have a couple of other honourable mentions for NPCs that I quite liked. Daryl Bowman, the town sheriff... He's just perfect for doing your worst Sheriff J.W. Pepper of the Louisiana State Police. If you want to uh, go back to Roger Moore's James Bond films. Oh, dear God. <laughs> Loving the accent, Matt. <laughs> yeah, he, can, can we just apologise to every listener who knows what a Louisiana accent should sound like? Or really, who has he is? <laughs> you try saying it with his throat. <laughs> and the other one, just because of the name... Randy Bridegroom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, I mean, it's a great name, but it's no Randy Bumgardner. 
So you've given us a few of the NPCs. How about the locations? They have everything in the book from public utilities to stores to restaurants to businesses uh, or local historic landmarks. They've got pretty much everything in there that you would need. The one thing I really like is a map. They don't have a map? Yeah. No, no map. I I read a few reviews. In fact, our good friend CJ Roma wrote a review on RPG Net sometime back about this. And that was one of the first things he picked up on. He said, it's bizarre that you've got all these fantastic locations and, and it sort of describes streets and it gives you an overview of the town. And there is no map published for it. And do they describe the geographical relationship between places in the text? Some of them. So it does imply a map. Yeah, I've tried this before as just a random exercise, trying to be able to work out where places are in relation to others. But I'm not sure if it's how I've read them or if I've got it wrong, but there seem to be a couple of contradictions as to where some places are in relation to others, that certain road junctions don't make sense in layout of where they say this is on this side of town, this is on the other side of town, but it can't be a junction then that goes that way and that way. But it's not supposed to be conflicting information, is it? It's not intentionally surreal? I'd say no, because there are some locations where it's blatantly evident that that is the case. It's more in isolation rather than the whole town. Hmm. Well, that seems an odd decision not to have a map. In fact, one of them is one of the locations I've chosen. First off, though, the Potter's Lake Memorial Hospital... That has a couple of different bits in it. It's got uh, like the Southie Wing, which is where some old polio kids were treated. But the bit that I liked the most was the morgue. Um, of course. Yeah. <laughs> it's only a throwaway bit in there, but it's also got one of the best pieces of artwork in the book for it, that you have all these cadavers laid out on trays. And then you have a clown riding a unicycle with this big deathly grin on it while all the bodies are staring at it. The one that's nearest the viewer is staring and turning, looking at you as the reader. There is a clown referred to as Morgie (laughs) that performs for the dead and keeps them all in check so they don't go wandering through the hospital. You know when you said there wasn't much absurd in here, Matt? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is is one of the bits. Okay. Yeah, I I love that. I've made uh, Morgie, or as I've called him, Morgan in the games uh, that I've run, has been a more regular NPC that the players have dealt with. They kind of relate from a bit like um, Twisty the Clown in uh, American Horror Story. Poor Twisty. <laughs> the next one, again, probably touches on the um, the absurd a bit just because of the crazy juxtaposition. The Gas and Gospel. This is a gas station. In fact, one of the first places you can go to going into the town because it's on the highway going out through the woods where you can get your tank filled up with gas and you can have your soul saved <laughs> by the good old Reverend GB. I'm imagining there are places like this in the States, though. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a gas station and chapel combined. I certainly saw adverts for drive-in churches and so on in the uh, States. Then apparently it's not as crazy as I was thinking it was. <laughs> yeah. Can I check your oil, sir? And your eternal soul. <laughs> you might see some very odd statues that GB's been making out in his back garden as well with glass and wire, all seemingly forming a, a line protecting the gas and gospel from the woods beyond. And the last one, Mulberry Street. Where will it show up next? When I was at school, they made the joke about, because it was such a huge campus, if you're looking for that classroom, yeah, go go down that corridor there, uh, go across the courtyard and then turn right by the swimming pool. There is no swimming pool on site. And likewise, Mulberry Street, the town officials say, oh, it's just a map error. There was a planned street between this street and this other street, but it never got made. But then why do people keep finding it? And so, why does it keep cropping up in various parts of the town? 
So this is a little reminiscent of some of Lovecraft's stories where he's got the Rue de Soy mm-hmm. in um, Pickman's model, right? No, uh, Music no. of Eric Music of Eric Zahn, this street that sometimes he can find, but now he can't find it again. But, but also in Pickman's model, there's the location of Pickman's gallery, which he can never find again. It also makes me think a little bit of Danny the Street from the old Doom Patrol comics written by Grant Morrison, which is just this this street that appears randomly throughout the world. The Doom Patrol end up having their headquarters on there and, you know, Danny just appears wherever he fancies and, <laughs> and just integrates himself into the surrounding city. Yeah. I've, I've had it once in a scenario where they find the street out in the woods, just this deserted cul-de-sac leading nowhere. <laughs> It's sounding dangerously like a recurring off-license, though. <laughs> yeah, there is that. Yeah. Flashback, flashback to a previous episode about yep. the ritual. <laughs> but you mentioned the woods there. I mean, when we were talking about locations earlier, you said that the woods particularly struck you as an interesting location. Yeah, that I ended up putting them in honourable mentions because I found that I could use the likes of Mulberry Street more. The woods are a bit like the hospital in some respects, that they have sub-locations within them. Some of them are fantastic. The Frog Pond is a particular favourite of mine, uh, where you're stumbling through the the woods and then all of a sudden you just hear ribbit, ribbit, ribbit from all around. There's this huge frog pond with hundreds and thousands of frogs on lily pads and on the surrounding land and this dull mist everywhere. Uh, Some of the theories put aside by St Anselm's is that uh, there's some psychedelic uh, effect of the spores released by the plants there. That's why people always seem a little bit high, they can never find where it is. It's all just hallucination. The perpetual sand dune which just mopes around and you find bits of it in your shoes every time you come back out, or Civil War soldiers that are out there. Rows of unmarked graves which are reading between the lines, the graves of the Native Americans that Oyafio was ordered to kill by God and that's where he buried them. Ah, it's like there's little bits dotted around, but for what would be kind of the end game being going into the woods and hunting down the two trees, aren't the Devil's Claw, this big, ugly hand reaching up into the sky that's this dead tree with one lone apple growing at the top. It's somewhere I felt could have had a bit more detail and more help and support trying to get the end game and do it justice. I understand why they've palmed a lot of it off to the GM to say, make it your game how you want mm. to end it. But a bit more toolkit I would have liked other honourable mentions I put down were things like the Cane House. It's a place where a serial killer buried a lot of people in his basement, but the ghosts of the people that were killed there are all still living in the house and perpetually plaguing poor woman who runs the, as a boarding house. You, you set a scenario there, didn't you? Oh, yes. <laughs> Including having the... Um Oh, the landlady as a PC rather than just the yes. NPC in there. That's the only time I've actually played Heaven and Earth. You ran that some time back, and, and yes, I remember that scenario. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Deke's Bar and Grill, or as I've just put in my notes here, Roadhouse. Uh, for those of you that have uh, watched Family Guy. Yeah, it's pretty much the Roadhouse from Twin Peaks. Uh, New City Hall, the crazy part church, part Escherian nightmare, where all the corridors lead back on themselves and time and space distort and twist in there. But again, a bit like the woods could have helped with having some more examples of crazy rooms that you could stumble across or other craziness that could have happened there. It really strikes me, listening to all this, that the game must have been heavily influenced by Over the Edge. It's not just the tone, or, you know, Over the Edge, published by Atlas Games originally back in the 1990s. 
is another game that uses surrealism, weirdness, elements of horror, and it did very much the same thing. It presented this location, Alamara, that had all these strange people and locations and, you know, some backstory tying some elements of them together and lots of subplots going on. It presented them in very similar kinds of ways. In fact, even putting out a few source books of them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Skipping ahead slightly to the mechanics of the game, certain skills that you have on the character sheet are very, very reminiscent of how skills are organised and become almost like umbrellas in the game as well. Now let's take a brief look at the game mechanics that Heaven and Earth uses. So Matt, how crunchy a game would you say this is? How complex are the mechanics overall? Um, they're my kind of level of complex. So what, what are the game that listeners might know might you compare them to in level of complexity? It's hard to give a parallel example, but um, using Call of Cthulhu as a benchmark, I'd say it's a bit simpler than Call of Cthulhu from, from BRP. So you have a character sheet with some stats on, coordination, strength, knowledge and so on. So can you just give us a, a brief overview of the game mechanics, how they might compare to other games? I suppose one of the... And parallels you could draw is almost World of Darkness, where you have a stat plus a skill. Right. But rather than being the number of dice that you roll, it's a modifier that you add to your dice roll. And unlike like Cthulhu, where you are predominantly rolling percentile for all of your skills and all of your characteristics, in this, the dice you roll is dictated by the difficulty of the action you are trying to undertake. Right. So if you're trying to undertake something that's very, very difficult, stroke nearly impossible, you're rolling a d4, all the way up to something that's ridiculously easy, but not to the point where you don't have to bother rolling at all, you're rolling a d20. Okay. The target number is always 9, hence why it's almost impossible if you're rolling a d4. Unless you've got really good stats on your sheet, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you take a stat, so like strength, fortitude, etc., whatever stat there is in question relevant to the action you're performing, add on your occupational modifier or extracurricular skill. These rank between one and three points. They call them rookie, professional, and veteran. This is where it becomes very over the edge, because like, your occupation, if you can justify that someone of your occupation would have a particular skill relevant to the action you're performing, like, for instance, I'm a librarian, I'm going to want to research something, I want to like do a library use role, um, you're a librarian, duh, you know how to use a library, you know how to research, things like that. So you'd get a plus three in that? Uh, depending on what your level of occupation is. You right, okay. Plus one, plus two, or plus three. Yeah. And from what I understand, certain occupations are more expensive in character creation than others if they've got a broader range of skills and contacts and, and resources you can call upon. Exactly that, yeah. So whereas someone who might be a utility worker or very, very focused and very niche profession, like, say, street cleaner would be one, up to maybe a lawyer or government official being five. So being Dale Cooper would be a five, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but worth it. Mm -hmm. You add that to the number you roll on the dice, and hopefully you hit nine. There is a combat system, um, which is a bit more granular. But generally, it's almost like regular skill checks in Cthulhu. It's just you're able to work out your stat and your relevant occupation or extracurricular skill would fit in, because you can have skills that are outside of your occupation, but you have to buy them separately. And are there any subsystems that get really complex? Magic and psychic skills get complicated. Right. But again, it's all about working out target numbers and working out modifiers. The modifier bit is the bit that takes time. Oh, the psychic skill. Sorry, you've just reminded me. Well, this was the game, wasn't it, where you ran a game at the club ages ago and one of the players took a character who was 
pyrokinetic, is that right? Yeah, and, I remember this. And the, you know, in, in the first scene, an NPC turned up who was supposed to give them all the information they needed to start the campaign going, and the player, just with no problem, sort of said, I set him on fire with my mind. Yep, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the, the fucking the, players. The setup scene where the wife of the Air Force base commander turned up to hire the PCs because they were members of a private investigation company. Yeah, he said he, the said player was out in the um, got the kitchenette making a cup of coffee. Looked at her through the crack in the door and set her on fire. Players, <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> well, set them on fire. Well, so long as she'd written a like monologue out on non-flammable paper or something <laughs> in her pocket be fine as i mentioned as well with um, fate and destiny being carried over from previous games fate less so but destiny more so now destiny are a bit like fate points in other game terminology that they are resources that you can spend a bit like luck to some extent in cthulhu terms as well you can spend one to re-roll the dice or you can spend two to get an automatic success and, and you can also spend them to advance your character, is that right? They are XP, effectively, yeah. So every time you want to modify your roles, you are kissing by to XP. One thing I liked about the character creation is, you know, on top of all this, you also have a number of questions that you, you answer. I mean, for a start, you, you choose hobbies for the character, which are not as powerful as occupations, but sort of flesh hmm. out the character and what they're interested in. But then there's also that little mini questionnaire that you get, where there's about 10 questions you answer <laughs> that just sort of flesh out what your character's personality is. And that just struck me as being a really cool idea that we should probably do more of in games. Yeah, because it, it helps surround you as a character that's grounded and has got real world ambitions and drives that kind of thing but it's also you know what scares them or what motivates them and you know all the various things that will shape how your character reacts to situations that you might not have thought of in advance and finally let's take a look at what you can do with heaven and earth Well, let's start off by talking about characters. I mean, we talked a little bit about character creation, but in more general terms, what kind of character would you normally play in Heaven and Earth? Again, it varies a bit depending on which edition you focus on. Second Ed seemed to be more focused on the likes, as previously mentioned, like FBI investigation or being part of law enforcement, being someone who was outside of town coming into town to try and solve a problem and then getting mixed up in the weirdness. Whereas 3rd edition focuses more on normal people. People have recently moved to the town and are slowly realising, hang on a minute, this, my neighbours are a bit kooky. That said, they could be people that have come to town seemingly on normal pretenses, but then realise they're actually part of Christ's bloodline. So you could play psychics, you could play magicians. This is where I mentioned about using the Unknown Armies parallel, that you could start off as a street-level game if you were just people that had no idea about the weirdness around them and are thrown in at the deep end. You could move up to global level, either being members of the bloodline and not realising it, so having powers, or being members of various um, secret societies that are moving in town, or various conspiracies. And you've got very the X-Files angle of Project Grayscale trying to hunt down all the psychics and trying to weaponize them that are based at the Air Force Base. Um, you've got the Great oh, Seal. That sounds a lot like the shop from Stephen King's Firestarter and so on. Oh, yeah, very, very, yeah. very much so, yeah. You've also got the Great Seal Council, which are an overarching conspiracy, ultimately puppeting them. So it's layers like an, layers of the onion. It's there's one conspiracy controlling another one, controlling another one. You can go down the kind of the biblical angle of the various different religious cults in town or religious secret societies, the Wing of Saint Michael, which have come here to try and find out what the hell is going on. 
Um, another one, the Brotherhood of Ionis, that have the head of Baphomet and it occasionally spouts random pieces of information at them. And that, again, is a nice little plot dispenser. Nice. Yeah. So you've run this as a game at the Milton Keynes Role-Playing Game Club over an eight-week session. Do you think it was something that would stand up to running an ongoing game of, or is it kind of a contained scenarios and short campaigns? Oh, I've, I've run it as an interlinked campaign over three long blocks, so three eight-week blocks. Yeah, I think it does stand up to campaign play. It's almost like that progression from street level up to cosmic level of realising that, yeah, you're, you may think at the beginning that you are some lonely chess piece on the board until you realise, actually, I've got the ability to redefine the game around me and redefine the world. And do you find that you bring your own ideas to it as you do, I know you do with Call of Cthulhu when you write scenarios for that. Do you find you can do the same thing with Heaven and Earth or is it more that you're immersing yourself in Heaven and Earth and using the things that are in the books? I've drawn upon some other bits that I've thrown in there. For the campaign one, for example, I extrapolated upon the Garden of Eden references. One of the things that I'd pulled in was the gates of the Garden of Eden having a new development in town, kind of extending the town on its northern border and pushing into the woods. And as they were um, laying out the basements and carving out the foundations of the homes, they found these two large um, pillars of stone, which were the remnants of the gateposts, which would ultimately be a connection almost like a lightning rod. Think of it in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark term. A lightning rod to God, that it was a way to communicate with the divine. I guess what I'm trying to get at is how much freedom you feel as a GM running games for this game it seems to me and tell me if i'm wrong but it seems to me like getting into it is a bit like getting into ravenloft dungeons and dragons you know it's a campaign setting but you don't then play other settings in dungeons and dragons you just play ravenloft if you play in heaven and earth you just it's very embedded in the setting it's more about the setting it's not a bad thing it's kind of a specificity of the game Yes and no. It depends on where you want kind of the edge of your canvas to be. If you want it to focus purely on the secret societies, for example, you could have plenty of fun setting them off against each other and having a campaign just with their little intergroup conflict and not having to worry too much about other parts of the town, other crazy shit that's happening, the fact that the police have used to have an illegal moonshine operation in their basement. There's lots of it you can jettison. Mm-hmm. and just focus on one particular aspect of it. You don't have to use all of it. As mentioned, with things like The Woods, with things like New City Hall, there's enough where it's just given you a hint of the border and then says the GM's filling in the rest. Like, for instance, it gives you options to what happens if for the PCs ever do get the apple. It doesn't say, for instance, this is how you get it, but then gives you, again, just recommendations to say, well, it could do this, it could do that, but it's ultimately down to the GM to work out what works for your game. Well, I mean, all of these are setting elements... So when you come around to actually running a scenario or a campaign, what does that actually look like? They present you with a lot of tools. It's then your mission as a GM, really, to create a story that uses as much or as little of those tools as you wish. So they could be bits that you drag into your story. A bit like, for instance, if you were to set a game in Arkham for Call of Cthulhu. It's, do you want to bring Armitage in, for example? Do you want to use the Mystic University? Well, if you do, here's some examples of things that could be in there. It's not to say that that's the be-all and end-all, but it gives you an idea of the themes of stuff that's going on in town and that will serve as inspiration for you to create your own story and use as say, much as or little as you want, really. If you wanted to get into it easily, is there a quick start version or a rules-like version that you can read? Or or can you just get the book or the PDF and read the rules? Because you've said they're reasonably light 
And then is there a taste a bit that you can do, or do you have to get conversant with the whole setting, really, to be able to run it? Abstract Nova did release a primer document, which yeah. was to give you an idea of the town, give you an idea of some of the NPCs, some of the locations. So it was almost like a bite-sized chunk mm. uh, to give you a feel of what it's like. And but, that's still on the website. It's a free download, and it's, I think, about 10 pages long. Yeah, it's not very long at all. Yeah. Yeah, there were a number of other things that they had on there as well. Uh, there was a free mini-scenario uh, called Sub Rosa, which is still available as a uh, free download. And yeah, they did these three volumes of, um, again, free PDFs called Odds and Ends, uh, which seem to be mostly scenario seeds. <clears throat> There's a few other NPCs which I think got dotted around in there as well. But in terms of stuff that was published for the, the setting, if we're talking about third edition, it was just the core book and, and this one supplement, Paradise Lost. Yeah. With the exception of one PDF for second edition, it's only ever been core rulebooks. Third Ed had the only big, true published supplement. That second edition PDF was that what was that? Welcome to Potter's Lake. That's the one. Yeah, I mean, from what I understand, I mean that is still relevant or still usable if you're you know using third edition, or at least it still might have some useful stuff in there. But yeah, everything in there just. Don't mind the mechanics, just pull out all the raw info and it's like a gold mine. There's loads of stuff you can pull out from Welcome to Potter's Lake. Thank you. Thank you. It is that time once again to thank all you lovely, lovely people who back the podcast and keep us going. The money you send us on Patreon just pays for all our running costs and the work that goes into putting the podcast together. And we thank each and every one of you. And we have some new people to thank this time as well. And when I say thank, we mean that we're going to thank them through song. Oh boy. Yes, for backing us at the $5 level, you get a personalised song. Well, we call it a song. And our first backer today at the $5 level is indeed Scott Landrum. Indeed. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you very much, Scott, and we hope you find this spiritually uplifting. Scotland, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Scotland, thank you, Scotland. And the next recipient of our dulcet tones in song is Rachel DiCoccio. Well, thank you very much, Rachel, and, and uh, we hope you enjoy this. Thank you, Rachel. Brace yourself. Thank you. Meanwhile, on social media... And we're pleased to announce we've had a new iTunes review. This week from Imperator Helvetica. The five stars are right. I first learnt of this singular podcast in the spring of 1923, finding a reference to it tucked into an old mouldering book in which my departed great-uncle Wilbur had seen fit to preserve, despite letting his stately New England home fall into a most decadent state of rack and ruin. 
thinking that this Jackson Elias was the key to my great uncle's mysterious disappearance, last seen by his housekeeper heading to the coast, weighed down with some stone tablets and a selection of nets and buckets. I went to call on the gentleman, but he was already engaged in the meeting, so I sought out these good friends of his. A sinister and disquieting trio, resplendent in gaming wisdom, cunning play in GM strategy, great horror reviews, and a fecundity of inspiration and gaming ideas which left me shaken, drained, and reduced to near only my vital salts and essences. A devilish sense of humour and levity also pervaded the conversation, and still rings in my ears as I stumble across these blasted moors. Wonderful and entertaining as it may be, it is in my dreams that I am troubled by the singing. Praise coming from inhuman voices in dreadful supplication to beings old when the earth was young. My sanity ebbs away as I am compelled to improve my gaming and expand my reading, their voices echoing in my ears. Curse you, auto-downloader, even as I delve into the arcane back catalogue. In conclusion... An enjoyable stay at the Witch House on the Hill Airbnb. Great chat, fascinating discoveries, but I couldn't find the pool table. We have a pool table? Well, thank you very much for that most wonderful review, Helvetica. Uh, and uh, yes, well, what more can we say? Yes, thank you very much, and, and thank you to everyone who has left us a review. If you feel moved to do so, we would love that. I, not only does it boost our fragile little egos, but these reviews make the podcast more visible to the wider world and help us ensnare more innocent, tender young minds. And we've also had some feedback on our recent episode about The Thing. Yeah, we had a lot of feedback on The Thing. It turns out that The Thing seems to be the favourite film of a good bunch of our listeners. Damn uh, right, so it should yeah. be. Tom Bagwell over on G Plus says, No discussion of The Thing is complete without recommendation of the short story by Peter Watts, The Things, told from the creature's perspective. You can read The Things for free, or listen to it, at Clark's World magazine. Yeah, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, I mean, Peter Watts is, is a fairly groundbreaking science fiction author. Uh, he's probably best known for putting out a novel called Blindsight a while back, which is an, uh, yeah, a number of our readers responded when this came up, is a good example of, of how to do Lovecraftian horror without Lovecraftian horror, if that makes any sense. That it's about you know, the exploration of the truly alien and what it does to the human mind. Highly recommended. And from me, Kurt Tertienen, on Facebook. I'm surprised to note that you didn't mention the theory that the bottle of booze at the end is actually one of MacReady's Molotovs. Charles is likely assimilated and lacks the knowledge of what a sip of scotch should taste like. Thus, MacReady's laugh. He just confirmed the other man is an imitation. On the 2016 Blu-ray commentary track, the cinematographer Cudney confirms there's a subtle tell for those infected. Everyone else has a slight gleam, a light effect in their eyes. Personally, I believe the eye gleam stroke gasoline bottle stroke breath combo seals the deal. And finally, 
transhuman on Discord. I should just say that after the announcement that Google Plus is shutting down next year, we had an influx of people onto our Discord channel. So the conversation there has become quite a lot more lively recently. We tried to restructure the channels a bit more so that it breaks up the conversation into manageable chunks. And so if you, you fancy some real-time chat with us, we can sometimes be found there. But yes, anyway, Transhuman says... I think the best thing about The Thing for games is that it's such a strong other. You can get an idea about how to do something about it, but it defies proper understanding. The best example of that is the Bennings Thing scene, where the characters are confronted by the fact that the monster they saw in the kennels did not die. They cannot kill it. It's more than they ever imagined, and any sense of security they had is ripped from them. And I think that, I mean, that's a great point in thinking about how to present monsters in horror games, that confounding the player's expectations, removing that sense of safety. I mean, we've mentioned a number of times that there is nothing more diffusing to the sense of horror than, oh yeah, there's a bunch of deep ones, we can just get the shotguns, blow them away, job sorted. But as soon as you're up against something that you just cannot understand or doesn't seem to be played by the rules that you're expecting, then yeah, that, that is far more horrific. And let's wrap up with our final thoughts about Heaven and Earth. Well, Matt, you've run a lot of Heaven and Earth. Uh, you've run an ongoing campaign at the club. You've run a number of one-shots. You've mm -hmm. run it at conventions. Yeah. One thing we didn't really get into in our discussion is, really, your experiences of play, the kind of scenarios and, and seeds and so on that you use to create play. So can you share some of your favourite experiences of running Heaven and Earth with us? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Some of the seeds I've used... Uh, for example, uh, I've had PCs implicated in a murder mystery by the sheriff, mainly because he's looking for a quick answer. So he thinks I'll pin it on the out of towners and that'll, that'll solve my problem. A jailbreak inspired standoff in the cane house, one that uh, you played. Oh, yes. With a Goetia that's been summoned there. A team of mobsters going into the woods to look for hallucinogenic frogs and instead finding Mulberry Street out in the middle of nowhere. Thanksgiving dinner being used to pass on a curse to one of the PCs and then finding themselves in a bit of a time loop when they start to unravel things. A new development built on the remains of the gatepost of the Garden of Eden, as mentioned as well. And I think the best experience I've had running it was at one of the sessions at the MKRPG Club in the first part of the campaign block that I ran, where in that new development, ghosts were being drawn out of the lake. One of the things about the lake is that no one goes swimming in there if they can help it, because people that swim invariably end up, if they go too far out, invariably end up dead, and their bodies are rarely recovered. Mainly because the ghost of Jacob Potter who was wrapped up in bearskins and then drowned in the middle of the lake by the Indians. <laughs> not wrapped in plastic like Laura Palmer. Nope, not, in, not plastic, no. <laughs> is still down there and constantly looking for people to help bring him to the surface. So he just keeps clawing at all these poor swimmers that he sees oh, overhead nice. and keeps dragging them to their death. So there's a little memorial in uh, Deke's Bar and Grill because Deke's son was one of the victims of the ghost. And he's got this wonderful painting of the lake surrounded by the woods. And around it are pinned up all photos and Polaroid snapshots of all the kids that have drowned there over the years. What was Potter's first name? Is it Jason? Jacob. Oh. No, not <laughs> <laughs> But in the scenario that I was running, the kids were able to find a way back through the gateposts to Garden of Eden. It was their way of trying to get to heaven. It was like a lifeline for them. Oh, nice. Yeah. So you had all the ghosts of kids walking out of the water and then walking their way through the estate up through the, um, the different houses up towards the hill where the gateposts were. And you had Morgan, or Morgie, the clown that was supposed to be keeping the dead dead 
and keeping them where they are, trying to make sure they weren't coming out of the lake. So you had a wonderful standoff between someone being trying to be drowned at the edge of the lake, this uh, demonic clown harassing the PCs, and just chaos breaking out left, right, and centre. It was one of the most active and most fulfilling sessions I've had at a game table for a long time. It turned quite clear. So basically, Morgie the Clown is is almost like an anti-psychopomp. That's my take on him. In the book, it is just a throwaway reference saying that there is this crazy ghost clown that performs to the dead in the morgue. I extrapolated upon that and made okay. him a bit more of a fully fleshed NPC. It occurs to me this game came about 10 years after the original seasons of Twin Peaks. But also it's very much around the millennium as well. Mm. Is this? Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a manifestation of those kind of millennial themes? We had three editions bridging five years at the end of the 20th century, start of the 21st, and, and not much since then. Oh, yeah. I, I, whenever I set the game, I always say that it's the late 90s, that it's the lead up to the millennium, because the millennium is the end of the world. Right. Either has to be that or 2012. Yeah, it's the, the Y2K bug or an appalling Hollywood disaster film. Or 2016. Well, thanks very much, Matt, for telling us about Heaven and Earth. And just one final question I've got is, you've said it's one of your favourite games. Where would you rank it? Is it your most favourite game? It's definitely up in my top five. In Um, your top five? I think order changes a little bit from time to time, but it's definitely up there with with Call of Cthulhu, Cult. It's it's up there with the big three. But but it's no tune. The only game where half an hour felt like three hours. Any (laughs) game that can do time dilation to that effect is unique you're you're so easy sometimes matt (laughs) okay well until 2019 it's a good night from me a cheerio from me and a farewell from me hello blasphemoustomes.com Happy New Year!